Well, that last session kind of wore me out. <laughs> that was a lot of stuff. It's a huge topic. Um, I think just that story um, from Indonesia, you know, here we sit in this auditorium and we hear about that story from Indonesia and we think, wow, you know, those are our brothers and sisters. And what does that mean for us? So I really want to um, commend Kelly for looking at ethical principles that are transcultural, that aren't, are, are go beyond what, um, you know, member care started uh, in the U mostly with U United States and European missionaries. And so I think one of the big challenges to, is to continue to kind of break that, the, the uh, break out of the, the original culture, so to speak, of member care. And you can see that in Kelly's books as they've gone along, they've become more and more uh, based from around the world. And uh, my friend Aki Lim does member care in India. She's a singer um, from Malaysia, and she does member care in India. She did her dissertation looking at member care for Indians in, working in India. And she said, her comment is always, whenever we talk about it, and I make a comment, she goes, but that's so Western, it's so psychological. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and because that's my worldview, right? And so I don't see it, but she sees it. And she'll say, we have really different things we deal with in India. She said, like, people don't have enough to eat. And um, what about caring for your aging parents? Now, caring for your aging pa parents is a big, it's an issue here. I deal with it in my life because I'm, I live in the inner city and I'm a part of mission organization. But she says, no, I mean, our people have, they're responsible to support their parents. You know, my parents are supporting me, right? <laughs> they were responsible to support the parents. She said, and what about arranging marriages? She said, you know, for our people, that's one of the really big issues is marriages. And so, um, and, and their parents arrange them, and they, they'll arrange a marriage with someone who's not a Christian, then they have to leave the field, and maybe, maybe, our age, maybe what we need to do is, is help arrange marriages as part of member care. Well, that really blows my categories of what member care is about. <laughs> so I just, I just uh, say that to you because um, one of the things that I've discovered about myself is that I am a, um, I'm a recovering individualist. I, always, I sometimes imagine myself at, a, at, a, at a, an AA meeting, or, you know, an AA meeting saying, hi, my name is Jude, and I'm a recovering individualist. I have lived for 20 years I'm like one of the only white people in my neighborhood. I live in a Latino neighborhood. My husband's African-American. And why do I, I lived five years in Nepal and Amsterdam. I was born in the Netherlands. And I say to you, I am just beginning to find out how much my American worldview colors everything. So I say that to you, that as we go to other places, if we want to do anything in any part of the world besides right here in our own little culture, we have to be very, very humble about who we are. And psychology has a tremendous amount to offer. But there are many people in the world who have a lot to offer us as well. And we always have to be very humble. So I love this little, um, this little thing that says, holy ground. Our first task in approaching another people, another culture, another region, is to take off our shoes for the ground we are approaching is holy. And I think that's true if you're a psychologist and you're dealing with one individual, dealing with a family, looking at a culture, 
We always have to remember the, the sacredness and the holiness of that uh, as, we, as we enter into that space. Um, just want to give a, a couple examples of how difficult the ethical thing is. I, was, I have been, um, I, I'm, I teach in SIS, but I'm really a missionary. I've been doing mission work since, like for three decades. So I was in Amsterdam, I was in Nepal, and I've been in inner city LA for 20 years. And I was listening to that and thinking, hmm, I've been, um, I've been a victim of no member care. I've been a victim of very unethical member care. And I have also now experienced very, very good member care. So this is a topic that's really, really important to me. And I also realize how, I think you've, by listening to Kelly, you've realized how very, very complex it is. And <laughs> so one time, I, um, and I come at it not as a psychologist, but one time there was a group that came to LA. And um, they're from, there's a few of the folks here. The guy named, a man named Jim Westgate brought, he brings people um, from the Mennonite Seminary in Fresno, and they always come here. Some of the Mennonite folks here, still here? Yeah, right. There you are. Well, one time I thought um, I was going to speak. Now, it's a cross-cultural studies thing. So I didn't realize that I was speaking to this particular group was all, all in the marriage and family program. Because I would have understood that they had a very different idea of boundaries in, in their work. But I didn't know that. So I brought Chris along. Now, Chris is this kid. I met him when he was in high school. And he was like a street kid from Guatemala. And he, he was in LA. And God brought our lives together. And when I met him, I knew that I was going to have a very, very powerful relationship with him. I just knew it in my heart. And uh, he called me. He didn't speak much English then. And he called me. He was abandoned by his mom. And he's had every kind of abuse in his life. Um, some of you have heard his story. So uh, he called me. And he said, you know, I never had a mom. God told me, you're going to be my spiritual mom. OK, so here's the two of us with this group of MFT people telling our story. <laughs> well, I wasn't there, but Jim later called me. He goes, Oh, did we have an interesting debrief? <laughs> because they were all MFTs. <laughs> and you violated every ethical principle that we teach. <laughs> and I'm sure I do. And so I um, <laughs> Because that's not where I come from. And yet the struggle for us, I would call myself a non-professional in this, to say, what does it mean to have good ethical practices, even if they don't meet APA standards? Well, but that doesn't mean we don't have standards, and that doesn't mean we don't work at this. But it's, it's very, this, the whole area of cross-cultural ethics is so very, very complicated. And so that's why I, I encourage us to just to, to come at it with humility, and always to come at it with open hands as a learner. And one of the things I think cross-culturally is the most important things to learn is um, to ask, um, can you help me understand this, or can you help me understand that? And not just assuming we know about things. Uh, in anthropology, we always talk about a key informant. You know, in another culture, you always need that person you can go to and you can say, wow, I saw this. Um, instead of like, jump, could you like explain that to me? Help me understand. So that we always go with, just with that posture. So I guess what I, Kelly has said so many wonderful things. It's such an important field. Like I said, I have seen so many very broken people uh, because of lack of member care. I've also some, seen some people really, really thrive. And uh, we had um, this team conflict on my team in LA. And I really thought the whole thing was going to blow up and half of us would leave, because that's what happens when you, there's not good resolution. But I'm part of a great group called CRM. And they brought in a mediator. And we had hours and hours and days and days and, and weeks of mediation. And 
it was really, really, really hard. And you know something? It was really worth it. I am so grateful to be part of an organization that actually had us sitting at the table together, that talked to each other, and that we really, and we really love each other still. Now, we didn't trust each other right away. I mean, it was a whole process, but, but it was just such a healthy, good process. And one other thing that I would, will say, too, as I go, is um, what, there was a comment uh, asked yesterday about what are the groups that do some of this really well, and I think Kelly mentioned some of the Roman Catholic groups do. And I, I'm going to bring that back because um, my group that I'm with is Interchange, and we're a Christian order among the poor. We live among the poor. The reason we can do that is because we have committed to be part of an order. We're not part of an agency that's task-focused. We're an order. So we join Interchange. We belong to Interchange. We agree to values and commitment. We belong to each other first. From that, God has guided us into many different kinds of things. But we always belong to Interchange. We're always there for each other. And I think, uh, and we borrowed that from the Catholics. We have Catholics and Protestants together in Interchange. But I think there's something in that structure, in that order structure, that's very different than the way that a lot of us uh, have been in aid or mission agencies. That's really, uh, that's really worth looking at. And um, my final comment is that, um, you know, we can look at this topic and we can look at all the suffering. And I really, um, really am grateful for you bringing kind of the suffering and sacrifice piece back. So I think sometimes in the early days of member care, we got so overprotective of, of people that we never wanted them to suffer. And the fact is that that's not biblical. And our brothers and sisters around the world will remind us of that. Um, but I think the verse uh, that uh, is why I've stayed, well, why have I stayed for 20 years in L.A.? Uh, a lot of people ask me that. And, uh, boy, my heart's been broken so many times. I could, I could tell you stories for hours, but you know why I stay? for the joy, because for the joy, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And if God leads us to a hard place, there will be joy. And that's why we stay. And that's why we need good member care <laughs> as well. So. Thank you so much. That, that is great. Uh, Al says I could respond, say a couple of things briefly. I really appreciate your uh, emphasis on humility and belonging and just the reality out there, the things we need to learn ourselves. So, so important. Three quick thoughts to build upon and affirm what you shared. First is uh, going back in Old Testament, Psalm 78, verse 72. Two core things said about David in spite of his many faux pas. First of all, he shepherded his people with integrity of heart. And secondly, he led them with skilled hands. That's what we're talking about, about ethical member care, good practice. People that have integrity, character, virtue, and those who have competencies and skills, both are needed to do member care well. David's example for men and women, for all of us, whatever our ministries are. Second has to do uh, several years later in the life of Patricius, whom we know as Patrick or St. Patrick, fifth century Irish saint. He starts out his confessions with the phrase, Ego Patricius Pecadorus Sistimus, I am Patrick a sinner, most unlearned. That humility that you're talking about, that we should embody, no matter what we do professionally and our practice in helping others. Patrick received a vision at age 42 or so, late at night, and the vision was this. He saw a man 
in Ireland where he was a slave in his teens for about six years. He escaped, went, became, went to Gaul, France, became a priest. And in the vision, it was the Macedonian vision, it said, we beseech you, holy youth, come and walk among us again. Let me just, as it were, lay aside my lecture notes and share from my heart to all of you here and those of you that might be watching this later on the video. I beseech you, the angelic host beseech you, people around the world beseech you, come and walk among us again or perhaps for the first time. We need you, we need your skill sets, and we need your character, your virtue, and your hearts. The third and final thing I'll do, I'd like to share is just point out one other person in uh, biblical history, and it's the person of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 16. And Jeff here has written a brilliant article, which we could send uh, digitally to you about Stephanus. The main thing and final thing I want to say to conclude my input here in the lecture is the model of Stephanus, who with his household, Fortunatus, Fortunatus Nicaeus, went intentionally about 400 miles to minister from Corinth to Ephesus, to minister to Paul, the great missionary who had so many needs and so many issues, of course, which he openly expresses in scripture, his own self-doubts and struggles and so forth, but they came to serve. And it says of Stephanus and of the household of Stephanus that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And that word in Greek for service is something like, help me here, diakonos or diokonai, which means basically doing whatever it takes to care for someone. So at the heart of member care is the willingness to get dirty, to inconvenience ourselves, but we want to do it in a quality way. We want to provide care, good care, carefully. But it's the attitude which is so important, the humility and the desire to inconvenience ourselves, make sacrifices, take risks for humanity and for the staff that we're supporting. But we want to do it carefully and well. And if there were one article or perhaps one portion of scripture that we've used more often than anything else, what you wrote, Jeff, in trying to help people from other cultures, pastors especially, understand what this member care thing is about, we just do a short little Bible study on Paul's need for member care and what Stephanus in the household of Stephanus did. Right there in scripture, right there, a New Testament prototype of member care. You can't get around it. And the principles contained in these three or four verses are fantastic in terms of helping open people's eyes to the need of reality. And if even Paul needed it, how much more do our people need it? Anyway, those are some of my thoughts and reflections. Thank you. Let me open it up to you. Do you have comments, questions? There are microphones right here. Feel free to come forward and make a comment. Thank you very much. 16. Um, two things that I heard you say that, uh, Kelly, that I really appreciated. One was the idea of physical care as part of this. And uh, it, it occurs to me that, there we go, it occurs to me that sometimes those who feel like they're being called uh, in ministry or whatever somehow feel that because of that they don't have to take care of themselves and or that God will take care of them because they're stepping out and so they don't use the seatbelt or they aren't as careful in those places and have accidents happen that wouldn't necessarily have to happen. Mm -hmm. And that happens here at home too, that when we're called somehow to not take care of your temple. So I I really affirmed and appreciated that. The the question I have is one of the things that I, I, I think I heard you hint at occasionally but wanted to know if you could address it specifically, is that with the ethics and with the problems in mission settings and member care, 
is how people negotiate multiple relationships. Um, I did some consultation in another country a number of years ago where there was a, an organization where, for example, one person was the boss of another person who in another context, that person sat on a board over the boss. Mm. And specifically, probably the, the trickiest place, especially within the church, is trying to tease out and, and keep integrated the idea of we are an institution, we are an organization, we have bosses and employees and things, and we're a family of Christians and we're like brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And uh, my experience has been that's been a great place of confusion, stress, and pain, and I wonder if you could address that. <laughs> Thank you. No. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. What, what do you think, Al? <laughs> um, I don't, I, I'm going to sound so trite and perhaps superficial in response. First of all, I want to recognize that's a reality. That's a reality we must live with and negotiate. For better and for worse, we will make mistakes. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. Just own them and try and improve. Secondly, a lot has to do, I think, with the notion of informed consent. So we provide services with organization, to organizations with our heads up. We live and are part of organizations where we know there will be overlapping relationships, conflicts of interest, and we must acknowledge them and then try to see how that might affect our judgment or affect our, our ability to serve effectively. There's sometimes when we simply have to say, no, I can't do this. We're in, it's, it's too confusing, and we need to find someone else to help you here. And um, I'm really sorry. I can't say a whole lot more. I know that um, Rosemead, Liz, Paul, Lewis did something on multiple relations and mission context about 10 years ago. And I might refer all of us to that article. But you bring up a good point, and it's something we have to negotiate and openly address. I think as much as possible in advance before we find ourselves kind of stuck in a position like that. But it's inevitable and we'll, we'll find it uh, happening all the time. But we can say no sometimes if it just seems like it's too complicated or might end up doing more harm than not. It does occur to me that being ethical isn't simply taking a principle and applying it. I think it takes some discernment. Um, we, you know, we read Matthew chapter 18, and we're told if a brother or sister fails in an area, we're, we are to confront them. Uh, do we get a consent form first? Is there a point at which the professional ethics doesn't apply? Or there's a deeper ethic? My relationship in the church is a covenantal relationship. In society, it's more contractual. So there's a different kind of relationship going on here. Is Jude's relationship to the young man the same as a therapist-client relationship? But what if I take all the professional ethics and apply it to that relationship? Then she'll have violated all of them in the books. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it takes discernment. What's the quality of the relationship? Is a faculty-student relationship the same as a therapist-client relationship? Well, there's some similarities, but no, not identical. So one has to think it through. That is, how does one do a theological critique of professional ethics? How does one interpret that? Professional codes emerge out of a different context. They weren't created in the church. So what is the ethical code that emerges out of the context of my relationship to someone else who is a brother or a sister? It might even be a more severe code in some cases 
Or in other cases, it might actually be different. I don't know. It takes discernment. Other comment? That's my, you invited a response, so I thought I <laughs> took the mic. Yes, please. Yeah, a uh, question for you, Kelly. Uh, and uh, Jude is my mentor. I'm in a PhD program with her uh, studying uh, missionary member care, focused very sharply on that. Uh, when she talked about interchange and the commitment that they have to one another, and this brother over here talked about uh, his uh, question about organizational politic and, uh, and relationship and dynamic, uh, something that you said in 1992 in, in your, one of your earlier published works about the philosophy of mission or ministry of the organization, its ethos, which in the 2002 model you seem to have, have let that slip. You basically said, take these principles and these ideas and apply them. Uh, it seems to me that somewhere in here we forgot the identity of the organization as something constituted and called of God, which would give us corporate practice, which would give us grounding and values and, and uh, purposes that were uh, not to be defined by some, some exterior profession, for example, um, psychology or pastoring or whatever, but it has its own identity and calling. If I come into that organization and make a commitment, suddenly I submitted to a set of ethos and values that uh, do constrain me. And why wouldn't psychology or pastoral counseling or some other helping profession come alongside and say, I want to look at the commitments that you've made and the integrity of those commitments. And uh, therefore, some systems of care may be different from other systems of care because of these essential groundings in calling and identity and commitment. Therefore, uh, to say I have a universal, we have to be really careful about the universal practices and principles mm -hmm. that we, we say must be always apparent. In fact, could it not be that God says for this group, suffering is especially a virtue? And for this group, it's not. Uh, it's just a, an observation, but I, I think it will inform more of our understanding of what ethics is if we learn to contextualize it, not just in another culture, but in the culture of an organization. Mm. And that's speaking from a CIS student, a missiological perspective, that even where we are, we are bound by culture. But that's not just an exclusive North American culture. It's, I mean, I, I have my ordination culture, and it tells me pretty specifically some things I, I am, uh, and I've agreed to. Mm. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This is the last one. Go ahead, David. A comment to balance what you said, though. Um, I'm Dave Rose. I teach the ethics class that Al previously taught that trained those MFTs. Um, <clears throat> It would be a mistake not to understand that those professional ethics codes we're talking about have their roots in our faith, in the Christian faith. I mean, there are Greek and, and other philosophical pieces too. But Jesus had something to say and it was heard by the broader community. It would be a mistake to think that because we are called by God that somehow we can step outside the whole history of the church and all of the work that's been done in developing those professional ethics within the church um, and to say that we can create this from scratch. I serve on the board of a large mission organization and one of the things we wrestle with is some of those various exactly the same issues about what does it mean to be in something like an order where we are committing ourselves to live sacrificially in mission and at the same time 
to treat ourselves and those with whom we serve around the world in all of those different cultures in ethical ways. And we need those external codes and those external conversations with people outside our order to keep us on, on task, to keep us balanced. As soon as we start just responding to our own sense of call and our own reading of scripture, we violate some of the things, Al, that you wrote about, about not using the whole community to discern what God is calling mm -hmm. us to do. And I think that's an ex my experience. That's a very common temptation for those involved in mission. Mm. So I would, would agree with what you said, but also say we need to balance it. I, I don't think I was saying what you said, but I agree with what you said. Okay. there's not an awareness that there is an internal ethos of calling mm. within mission organizations, the organization, that it is part of it, that it is a constituent part of a system of care. And when we come alongside a system, we are, as a psychologist, simply a part, maybe a part of that system or a helping system. And uh, so I think it's important to look at that yeah, you can check with my students to see how good I am at teaching it, but I try to teach them the awareness of the whole system and the ethics involved on that level, not just did we get a consent form. Okay. I'd like to respond to both of you, and I think that's fantastic. I think your observation is accurate about 1992 and you know, ethos and so forth. Let me just say, I think um, maybe to counter a bit of an emphasis I might have had in the previous lecture, the current trend might be to see is might be to see organizations as ogreizations, okay? Mm -hmm. Something despicable, negative, and their entities in their own right to be respected. And we see that in Stone One in this lecture that we respect diversity, we respect organizations, and so forth. And there's a phrase from Dr. Karen Carr who helped start the Mobile Member Care Team in an article she wrote. It's called "A Guest in Their World," and as we as mental health professionals come alongside to support the mission enterprise and a specific organization, we must respect them for being valid entities in their own right and that we are guests. We've been invited into their world. We just don't walk right into the kitchen and open up the refrigerator and take whatever we want out. Exactly. But we wait for their lead. We wait for their uh, introduction, hospitality, and so forth. So I see both perspectives and comments as being very valid. And we have a lot to contribute. But many times, we must be humble and contribute on their terms and respect them. Let me thank you again. Appreciate your, Kelly, your comments and your gift to us.